start oh okay hello and welcome to episode 65 65 of the world famous trod parts cats (laughs) um i'm vivian bastard (laughs) vivian bastard (laughs) yeah i'm going somewhere with that and I podcast with um, Rick F and Mail. <laughs> uh, okay, anything important to say, John? What do you have to say for yourself? Uh, so, last um, this episode's recording is uh, delayed because uh, my headset broke, hmm. and so I ordered another one, which arrived yesterday. And I thought, okay, great. And I just sort of put it aside. Mm. And then I got it out this morning to do the podcast. And oh, it's not a USB headset. It's a, Ugh. you've got to have a line-in port. And I don't have a line-in port. What am I going to do? Jeez. Darren's going to think I'm such an idiot. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I think, oh, I'm just going to have to try my old one again. I pick it up. I put it in. I think, you know what? Doesn't this have a mutant bu- mute button on it somewhere? <laughs> No. Yeah. My God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> We're good so at tech go. here at the Ted Zoo podcast. Yeah. We should call it the Tech Zoo podcast. The Tech Tech Zoo podcast. John is TCO, so we're in good hands. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> right. A uh, little bit of fu from last time. Um, I I think there's a oh yeah a couple of things. Um, fifteen credibility street, the name of Sharon Hill's podcast, possibly the third time it's been mentioned. Yeah, I discovered what it's a reference to. Yeah, what is it? Once in every lifetime. Have you ever seen the young ones? Did you used yeah. to watch the young ones? Yeah, that's where they live. That's the name. That's their address. Fifteen credibility really? street. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh, but I only discovered that by watching an episode where, um. Rick goes into what he thinks is a post office and has to give his address. And it's been 15 credibility streets. And there you go. So how stupid are we for not knowing that? Speaking of which, so what are the cities in the United States of America? There's one called New York in the east and there's one called Los Angeles in the west. Yeah. But it turns out there's a couple others really? as well. And in the movie Black Panther, which you've no doubt seen because it's a Marvel superhero film, uh, there's... And a scene in an urban environment, and it's somewhere in the West, so it's got to be Los Angeles. Wrong! It's not. It's Oakland, apparently. <laughs> so thank you to Mike Keezy for pointing that out. So there you go. I think that's right. Great. Correction <laughs> on superhero films. <laughs> yeah, Just never talk about them again. Okay. Is that it for um, a few? That's I everything so. we got wrong? Excellent. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, news from the world of Darren and John, it says here. Sunday brunch. Yeah, right. So, insert um, jingle here. 
Well, we can't do that. We don't have oh, money. Oh, I haven't, haven't got one. But we're doing well, doing well on the Patreonage, right? So you should be able yeah, to. Yeah, we'll cross that threshold. Just a few more people. Hint, hint. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you watch me on Sunday Brunch, which is a TV show on the television? I did. Well, I watched it on did YouTube you? later. Uh, it's on YouTube. I think so, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. It's on. It's on Channel 4's uh, streaming service, whatever More Four or whatever that's called. But um, oh, I left. I didn't know it was on YouTube. I'll have to check that out because I know lots of people that didn't haven't seen it yet. Um, yeah, that was fun. It was a promotional thing to talk about dinosaurs in the wild, which I've mentioned a couple of times before. Yeah. On the pod rats, and um, yeah, um, I spoke for a couple of minutes about dinosaurs, and I thought it went really well. Actually, oh, thanks. I, and I thought it was interesting that their questions weren't unbelievably boneheaded and dumb. Yeah, well, we we went through a couple of rehearsals, uh-huh. and um, obviously they were kind of boneheaded and dumb, but not that bad. I mean, the the, I was the ex- one. Yeah, I was expecting a lot worse. Well, well, the fact that uh, this 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 will sound weird, you know, to people who haven't seen what happened, but um, the fact that. I can't remember the names of the presenters. I think I think they're called Simon and Tim. I think the one called Simon said, um, but basically he ended the discussion by saying that that we got round to this. He asked he asked randomly. This wasn't in this wasn't didn't didn't come up in rehearsals. He said, um, "What you know? What's what does the future hold?" Basically, mm. and I'm like, and I'm like, "What you want speculations about human evolution?" And he's like, "No, just everything." So I'm, so I immediately thought, you know, rather than talk about your far future 50 million years Dougal Dixon stuff I thought you know let's keep it let's keep it on the scale of decades and centuries and I said you know the start started talking about the biodiversity crisis and what that might mean for evolution in the short term and I'm saying you know we're obviously we're obviously heading in a direction where you're going to lose lots of megafauna you're going to have a depauperate assemblage of animals right pretty familiar topic to anyone who knows anything about the natural world and there's a set of people who when you say that to them they're like yeah but yeah, but come on, really? I mean, you know, animals, you're telling us, you're telling us that, you know, that thinking about, you know, dinosaurs, you know, they you know, think everything's died in the past, but it turned out all right. <laughs> and I'm so, so I immediately said, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah, and, yeah, life will recover. The worst thing, the worst thing could happen and life will recover. And of course, as a, uh, you know, paleontologist, you're thinking in the di- on the the big picture. It's like, yeah, give it a couple of million years and everything will be fine. But I didn't emphasize. So, and that's what he took away from me. He's like, yeah, Darren says everything will be fine. Life will be back to normal short in a short time. No, Even if we do- no, I think you misread <clears throat> that totally. No, they let both me finish. Said afterwards, oh, that's a nice thought in a sarcastic way. Yeah, because because the, no, what you need to emphasise is that when you say that things will turn out all right, is you're talking on the scale of like a million years is not a long time. Two million years is long, not a long time. The fossil record shows us that life recovers from mass extinction events on the scale of millions of years. When you're talking about decades and centuries, what it possibly means for people to say that we're going to go through a biotic crisis on the scale of decades and centuries, and what that means for, you know the the next couple of generations you have to emphasize that yeah things will turn out all right but they won't be all right within the next couple of decades but, and centuries you're talking the about way they reacted yeah well I, just... I don't know whether they cut it or the camera angles or what but they definitely reacted like so it's bad then <laughs> they didn't react like oh so it's fine then uh, well if you 
obviously are never happy with things you say yourself, which is certainly <laughs> the case for me. You think of, oh, I should have done that better. So I'm think I'm looking at it hypercritically. I'm thinking I should have done that better. I should have emphasised that. Um, if we're talking about a biotic crisis that's gonna unfold over the next decades and centuries, what does that mean for you know people in proximate terms, not people in a million years? So okay, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't feel I conveyed it well enough. So what does what does the you know what does the possible global collapse of fish stocks mean for the millions of people that rely on fish you know what does the potential collapse of terrestrial ecosystems and loss of pollinators mean for people over the next you know several decades that's the sort of thing that i wish i'd emphasized but okay so you're saying i did a good job and i should relax and everything's fine well they seem to react in the appropriate way none of it came across like yeah anyway Okay, so and so, so Kathleen Turner. I said hello to Kathleen Turner. She said hello back to me. Wow, what an honour! And there's a bunch of other famous people. I don't, don't know who they were. Um, I, I know Vernon Kay. As I said, I spoke to Vernon Kay briefly. Uh, Vernon Kay, for those of you who don't know, he's a he's sort of like a a Northern England kind of popular TV person. He's he's a TV presenter. He does lots of sports stuff. Um, he's leading a one-person crusade to bring American football to. The UK, I think. <laughs> American football. Um, American um, football. Yeah, and he of told me that uh, he, he he told me that he has uh, you know just returned from the United States where he met that guy that was inspirational to what happened in Jurassic Park. And I said, you mean Jack Horner, the best paleontologist ever in the world? And he said, yeah, that guy. And he said, he's doing that chicken thing. And I said, the, what, the Dino Chicken Project? And I immediately <laughs> did my little skit about, you know, the alien film with the mutant Ripley's and everything. And uh, he said, yeah, 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 they've, uh, they're coming along really well and they've discovered this and that and that because uh, they are doing new stuff. But um, so, so there you go. There you go. Um... Yeah, so that, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Uh, I need to talk about this sexual selection meeting, but although I've got like a million things open to check in front of me, I haven't got any information on that. So I'll have to come back to that. But um, so off the top of my head, um, <laughs> sometime next month, I think it might be the 9th of May, there is a um, like a scientific meeting, uh, 9th and 10th May at Cheechley Hall in Buckinghamshire. You ever been to Chichley Hall? No. Have you? Uh, it's near Milton Keynes, and I've been to Milton Keynes quite a few times. Mm, I've been to Milton so, Keynes. Yeah, well, it's it's like used as a, uh, I think it's a stately home in the countryside, but it's used as a swanky um, uh, venue for conferences and, and stuff. So mm. it's going to be fun. Uh, for, a, for a time, a couple of those giant Asdarkid models constructed by Mark Witten and Dave Martell for that South Bank exhibition years ago. They were there. I don't know if they're still there. Probably go and find them. They're sort of like all rotting and all their fur is dropping off. They're like, <laughs> they're like the cast of stuff. Yeah. Five Nights at Freddy's or something. <laughs> Just decaying robots. They look hideous. Um, anyway, so a meeting on sexual selection, two days, loads of speakers. I'm one of the chairs or moderators, whatever you want to call it. I particularly in, I'm particularly looking forward to moderating uh, <laughs> Kevin Padian's in the session I'm in charge of. Uh, so is Dave Hone and, and a bunch of other people. So um, uh, yeah, Dave Hone's one of the organisers of this actually. So ooh, it's going to be good. And then shortly after that, 
by the way, this is the news from the world of Darren and John section. I've said, I have said yeah, that. Yeah, we said that. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, the 15th of, of uh, May, uh, the, the Brian Ford debate at uh, Conway Hall in London, which we definitely mentioned once or twice before. Yep. And I'm, I'm, nearly, I'm nearly done on that. I've, my talk's 25 minutes long, and uh, I've got so much to say. I'm really packing it in. But, um, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that'll be fun. That'll be fun, and I don't want to talk too much about what I'm going to talk about, and I try not to tweet about it and social media it too much because otherwise I'm sort of giving away all this stuff that he might, he might, I don't know, go to unusual lengths to counter, swat up, swat up or count. Yeah. Yeah. Counter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But then I, I'm, but I'm also struggling to think how he can do that given that he's already nailed his proverbial manifesto to the mast. I don't think people say <laughs> they nailed their manifesto <laughs> to the mast. I might be mixing my metaphors. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing to stop you, I guess. What you like with your manifesto? <laughs> Is that not what they did in days of old on sailing ships? They nailed a manifesto. Yeah, um, yeah it's like it's hard because I'm because you know I'm paranoid about these sorts of things, and I'm thinking, oh, what if he suddenly you know pulls some another metaphor, pulls a rabbit out of the hat, and it's like, ha ha! Have you considered? I don't know. I, I can't think of anything I haven't considered in this discussion. For those of you who don't know, Brian Ford, uh, independent researcher of i don't really understand what his deal is affiliation wise or what what his special area is but um he um he's been saying for a couple of years now that all dinosaurs were aquatic all the time and and i'm saying no <laughs> they weren't <laughs> okay yes they could swim i'm sure they could swim and yes yes some of them some of them were aquatic i think spinosaurus probably spent a lot of time in water house Scaraptor, there's a you know there's evidence for you know, swimming and wading in, in, in a, quite a few non-bird dinosaurs. But to say that they're pretty much all aquatic, which is what he's doing, as if yeah. it's 1935 again. Um, yeah, I, I, this is familiar. I've written about it. As I'm sure most listeners are familiar with this already. But um, the, uh, the, the this it's kind of like a debate. Uh, he talks first, haha. Then I talk afterwards. I had to had to fight to get that um, happening. Um, and this is all because he's got a book coming out which uh, i feel i've gone through all this before apologies if i'm repeating myself do we want to say anything on tetsukon uh not really there's no movement as such you say you've got speakers and all that but i think we've said that before so yeah i've, I've got a full schedule with loads of stuff and um the parallel sessions and everything so uh 6th and 7th of october 2018 is what we're going for mm-hmm Probably at the venue again in uh, Mallet Street, Central London. Yeah, um, should be pretty huge. Two days and stuff, and yeah. What's new at Tet Zoo? That also needs a jingle. Can mm -hmm. you write that down? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, go. What is new what at is, Tet Zoo? What is new at Tet Zoo? I don't know. Let's have a look. I can't remember. Um. Okay, The Making of Dinosaurs of the Isle of Wight. You don't own this book, do you? No, I don't think so. No. Okay, Dinosaurs of the Isle of Wight. Uh, basically, this article is the backstory. This is on Tedgebod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Um, 
uh, Dinosaurs the Isle of Wight is a book I published with David Martill, my former PhD supervisor in 2001. And this, yeah, this article is the backstory to that book, like how, how it is we came to do that book and our various <laughs> adventures, japes and scrapes <laughs> on the highways and byways of uh, southern England as we travelled about and did the uh, research and whatnot uh, for this book and how it all came together. And the the fact that today you can't really buy it for any ch- – okay, when it came out in 2001, it's a 433-page book and its uh, price is £16, which is a bargain. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's not a bargain. It's the appropriate price for a 433-page page soft, softback book. But today you can't get it for cheaper than £64. It's, it's sort of like elevated to collector status and um, – I only own one battered annotated copy and uh, I used to have, you know, I used to like buy, you know, whole packs of them and, um, you know, flog them off. But um, the publishers, the Paleontological Association are out of stock. So that ain't happening anymore. And I have, as I explained, oh, this is all in the article. Why am I even saying this? Okay, yeah. shut up, Darren. Shut up. Right. Yes, go and check that if you're interested. I like the backstories to anything, really. And I do like the backstories to books. It's often interesting. Um, now, connected to this, my research and preparation for this Brian Ford thing, but also because it's something I've wanted to mention for a while, I've also just published an article titled Enough with the Duck-Billed Dinosaurs. And this is a pretty familiar thing I think to anybody who actually knows about current dinosaur research. There's a group of dinosaurs, properly called hadrosaurs, vernacularly termed duckbills or duckbill dinosaurs, because if you look at their skulls, there's a number of taxa, in particular Edmontosaurus, the classic member of the group, which have got like a sort of wide, vaguely kind of ducky-shaped thing going on at the front of the snout there. And classic reconstructions depict this front of snout as, as flattened from top to top, top to, top to bottom, and spatulate. Yeah. So for a while they were called spoon-billed dinosaurs, and they began to be called duck-billed dinosaurs. And that is like a trope in paleo art and literature. Everyone depicts them as these like donald duck faced uh dabbling herbivores it's and it's tied into the concept of these dinosaurs as being amphibious or aquatic because surely if you have a duck like bill you must live like a duck you must you know on the surface of the water and eat like soft weeds and little shrimps or whatever but going all the way back to certainly 1923 um, people have been describing these mummified specimens where the actual beak tissue is preserved and that's what the article's about. The article's like, look at the beak tissue. Just look at the beak tissue. And the beak tissue shows that the while the underlying bones have got this vaguely duck-like spatulate form, the overlying beak tissue is just not at all a mirror of the bone. So imagine the spatulate form of the bones. Now imagine that curving forwards and downwards from the bones is this gigantic curving hooked bill which is actually preserved in a bunch of them so um that's what the article is about it's like no they're not duck bird at all they've got this giant gnarly hooked thing mm. that um yeah i'll go into this in some detail um i've screwed up though yeah yeah and i need to do a follow-up article 
<laughs> and I knew that I'd screwed up, but I went with it anyway. So one of the key specimens here is on display in Los Angeles County Museum. And I've got photographs of it in the, the article. <clears throat> this specimen's really interesting because it's got this big, gnarly, turned-down, uh, horny bill. And then on the leading edge of the bill, it's got a series of prominent striations. And the first time I saw this specimen, I saw it before I'd read anything about it, I was like, those striations look like the striations that are on the inside surface of the mouths of some animals with beak tissue. So I have a turtle skull, and on the inside, mm -hmm. what we call the lingual side, so the labial side is the outside, the lingual side is the inside of the mouth. On the lingual side, lingual means tongue side, right? So on the lingual side of the um, upper jaw, there are these kind of pillar-shaped parallel striations. They seem to be something to do with helping the beak tissue, the ramphothega, helping it sort of remain locked in place. And like I say, they're on the inside surface. And on this hadrosaur beak tissue, it's got striations yet they're on the outside surface. And I'm like, that's weird. That looks like we're not actually looking at the beak tissue. It looks like we're, we're seeing a surface that's actually the anchor for the actual beak tissue, in which case mm -hmm. we still don't have the actual beak tissue. There's a, a giant mur mural in the same gallery as this fossil, LACM 23502, collected in, uh, I think, 1970. And um, um, the mural is by Julius Satonyi. And on the outside surface of the beak tissue of the live animal, Julius has drawn these striations. So that, oh, he's done – and I remember looking at that at the time and even asking him. Um, he, he happened to be in Los Angeles on one occasion when I was there. And um, I was like, those striations are not meant to be on the outside of the live animal. They're medial. There should be there's extra tissue on the outside that anchors on top of that, and you know that's as far as it went. And then I forgot about it. Um, and then I also forgot about it when I wrote this article. And I've and I even have like an idiot drawn um, Edmontosaurus with this. You can see these illustrations in this article, Tetrapodology. You'll notice that I've drawn these gigantic striations on the outside, the outside surface of mm. the beak. In talking about this article on social media, one of the people who commented is Andy Farkey, who's a well-known ornithischian worker, and he's published on hadrosaurs. He described a juvenile Parasaurolophus with preserved beak tissue a couple of years ago. And, um, and he said, you know, this specimen was described in 1970. I'd forgotten that, and I, but I my memory jogged. I remembered the paper. It's by a guy called William Morris, who wrote some interesting papers on Californian dinosaurs and dinosaurs in general. Wait a minute, not Californian dinosaurs, whatever, American dinosaurs. There are a few dinosaurs from California, not many. And Morris shows this skull before it's been prepared. So on display today, it's, you know, pristine and there's no crap and no rock on it and stuff. Uh -huh. But in his, in his paper, you see it as it's originally figured. And he shows and describes how in, the, in its original condition, it's obvious that what looks like the beak on the fossil is a mold of the beak so it's like something internal to the actual beak on the upper jaw and the actual beak tissue has been lost or has decayed and so these striations 
are a um, are a, a mirror of actual structures that would have. This is really hard to describe without illustrations. Structures that would have protruded, um, like medially or lingually, in the actual fossil. So, so it's a cast those, of the inside of the mouth, the, the inside of the beak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the outside of the mouth, but the actual beak itself has gone, and you're looking at an internal mould of the beak. So you're looking at sediment that's like in between the beak and the bony edge. I think I think that's what the deal is. It's really it's it's kind of a little bit difficult to understand. I need to go back to it, but it means that the actual beak tissue would have been external to this mold. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have had those striations. Those striations are indeed on the ins on the lingual or medial side of the beak, <clears throat> and we're seeing a copy of them. So the actual beak tissue. This is what Morris, for your benefit, John, and no one else's. That is what Morris actually reconstructed. Huh. See, he gave this giant like chicken like hooked bill yeah. he, he reconstructed this for other hadrosaurs as well there he did it in yeah. carithiosaurus or hypacrosaurus or whatever that is a carithiosaurus um so yeah i need to go back to that and, and correct that so those striations would not have been visible in life you're looking at a mold and it also means that here i am saying that wow the beak is really big and and you know protruding downwards the actual beak was even bigger even bigger than the mold maybe mm. not by much but it was bigger so so there you go. So there you go. <clears throat> and what's funny is that this is well known. As I say, there's a there's a publication uh, from uh, 1923 uh, in German by Verslies, which I I've, I have no idea how to pronounce that name. Verslies. <laughs> 1923, the Schädel des Skeletts von Nectans, an old name for Edmontosaurus, in Senckenberg Museum. So this famous Senckenberg mummy in Germany purchased from the Sternbergs, I believe. Um, that specimen in 1923 has got this beak tissue preserved, and there are, there are others that have as well. So this is not a new thing. It's always been there. It's also present in the mummy in the AM&H. That's also got this giant town, downturned beak tissue. And yet you still have people, essentially even today, still illustrating Edmontosaurus just with a sort of Daffy Duck style, Donald Duck style, you know, spatula bill. Yeah, I mean... Well, it's like all these things. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff we've always known. The evidence has always been there. It's just no one's really taken dinosaur appearance seriously until, well, some people seem to, but got lots of things wrong, like Charles Knight. And then I think Greg Paul is the first really big push into getting a whole heap of it right, and that's in the eighties, right? Seventies mm. and eighties. Yeah, so hmm. uh, we've we've discussed dinosaur life appearance and attitudes to it quite a few times before. Yeah. I'm sure we'll come back to it again. Okay, sorry, I went on for a bit too long. Then didn't we really talk that long about it? <clears throat> yeah, people hate dinosaurs. <laughs> I hate you talking about dinosaurs. <laughs> but, but we're going to have to do it again because I'm going to have to come back to it. Okay. Okay. News from world of news. No, we do uh, have a jingle for this. Insert jingle here. <laughs> la, 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 la. There we go. News from World of News. Uh, a couple of things. Giant Ration ichthyosaurs. Mm. Now, I'm going to... Okay, so for not very long, for the last, say, I'm going to go for, say, four or five years, it's been uh, discovered 
that Shastasaurs, uh, a group of um, mid to gigantic sized early ichthyosaurs of the Triassic that don't have the characteristic shark-shaped or tuna-shaped body form of classic toniform ichthyosaurs. Shastasaurs, uh, they were thought to have died out in the late Triassic uh, at the end of what's called the Carnian. The end of the Triassic is Carnian, Norian, Raetian, with the Raetian being the last part of the Triassic, just before the Jurassic. It was thought that Shastasaurs died out in the Carnian, but uh, a series of discoveries from France and the UK and other places have shown that Shastasaurs persisted into the Raetian. And uh, this was first documented by my colleague Valentin Fisher, and it's caused people to look at like assorted bits and pieces from Europe, from the Raetian, that previously were just nondescript marine reptile bones or nondescript ichthyosaur bones. So, hey, wow, these are more Shastasaurs. So there's more Shastasaurs coming out of the Raetian all the time. Um, Dean Lomax over the past several years has just been going nuts. There's this huge publishing ichthyosaur spree, publishes about a paper a week, uh, they're, they're all pretty good papers. I like Dean. Uh, he's a good scientist, but bloody hell, it's just hard to keep up with it, especially when you're trying to publish research on ichthyosaurs uh, yourself. No comment on that. <laughs> um, uh, with uh, Jessica Lawrence Wujek, um, f- off the back of her PhD research, I'm, I'm involved in various uh, relevant studies. <clears throat> Hi, Jess, if you're listening. Um, so, so Dean... Uh, was informed of this gigantic Raetian ichthyosaur serangula, a bone from the back of the jaw. And this bone, just one bone from the lower jaw, is a meter long. It's from a Shastasaur, a Raetian Shastasaur. So it's more, it's another part of this Raetian Shastasaur story. If you work it out, this one bone obviously means you're talking about a jaw that's several meters long. <laughs> so he wrote it up. And in thinking about it, Raetian giant Shastasaurs, in the, it's, it's, this bone is from uh, the southwest of England, the kind of area, <laughs> to use technical term. Um, he got thinking about other stuff from that part of the world, and he went and checked out these famous cylindrical bone segments from Aust Cliff, which is... I think it's like Somerset, Bristol and Avon kind of region. So it's somewhere in the southwest of England, close to Wales, for those of you who don't know. Or it might even be in Glamorganshire in southern Wales. Jesus, I'm, I've forgotten now. And um, this is where the project overlaps with stuff that I and colleagues are involved in because um, these giant cylindrical bone segments, when I say giant, they're about, I think they're like about sort of 40 centimetres long. They're just these big cylinders of bone. They've always been an enigma. But uh, really, bizarrely, a couple of years back, probably, oh, no, I'm not going to try and guess the date, so let's get it wrong. Peter Galton, who's you know been around for, he's been publishing on dinosaurs for decades and decades, mm-hmm. and, and with all due respect, is well known for publishing on material that might not be the best in the world. Um, <laughs> he, he published a paper saying that these... Oh, these are, so these are late Triassic ratio, right? Late Triassic bone fragments. He said they are probably partial femoral shafts, so partial the partial middle sections of thigh bones from gigantic Triassic stegosaurs. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that first of all, myself and Dave Martell in an article we published, and then like a string of like six or seven other different sets of authors all said. 
no, 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 because because yeah. Well, it's um. First of all, it's really unlikely. So that they'd be the biggest stegosaurs ever, and having giant stegosaurs in the late Triassic would drag not just stegosaur evolution, but the whole of Thyreophoran evolution, the whole of Ornithischian evolution, the whole of dinosaur evolution, like you know, way back into the Triassic. It would. It would. It's not consistent with a, a substantial amount of other bits of evidence. Uh, and, and like the histology doesn't look right and stuff. So, cut a very long story short, it turns out these giant chunks are jaw fragments, additional jaw fragments from these giant ration chastisaurs. Myself and a team of others, again, Valentin Fisher and others, we'd already noticed that, and we were working on a manuscript about it, which is like quite long <laughs> and mostly done. And uh, Dean Lomax and colleagues, they've beaten us to it. So, ah, okay, this that's the way it goes. You know, and there's no ill will or anything here. This this happens when you can't work particularly quickly. It takes me ages to put papers together. This is a slow burn paper that was, you know, we were taking years to put it together. But um, so yeah, this is now out there. Giant ration Shastasaur type ichthyosaurs. So we're talking about animals with jaws, as in the lower jaw, like over five meters long maybe more, five to seven metres long, you work out what it means for the whole animal, it means that you're talking about super ichthyosaurs of like over 25 metres length, 25, 26 metres long. Now, of course, we've known for a while, thanks to an animal from British Columbia, um, originally described as Shonisaurus sicaniensis, but then renamed Shastasaurus sicaniensis, and there's different opinions as to what its name should be, but whatever. That animal's like, you know, well over 20 metres long. So, yeah, this is more... And bigger stuff along those lines. So yeah, yeah, they're pretty interesting. I mean, because this is—I don't know very much about ichthyosaurs, but these are getting up to be the biggest animals that have ever lived, right? I mean, they—they've got to be weighing what hundred tons, maybe more. I mean, they're really yep. big. What are yep. they doing? They what are they doing? <laughs> well. <laughs> so originally, it was argued that a couple of them. Well, they some of them seem to be toothless. So these giant ones probably are toothless, at least as adults. They may have they have teeth as juveniles. So the possibility that they were suction feeders has been proposed by, by one team of authors. That's then been contested because they actually lack a whole bunch of features associated with suction feeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but because remember, you don't, they, they do seem to have long slender jaws, which don't look like the sorts we associate with suction feeding. Suction feeding animals tend to have like broad heads and, you know, wide gapes and everything. Yeah. But, um, but things like sperm whales and beaked whales are supposed to use suction feeding during at least part of their feeding cycle. As in, they might actually grab stuff with the front of the jaws, but then they might actually, in getting it into the mouth, it might require uh, an intake of the uh, broader back of the the back of the jaws, uh, the actual mouth is the close to the gullet. So I don't know. I really don't know. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't see why they can't be um, pursuit predators of uh, reasonably sized vertebrates and invertebrates as well. They could because they've got. I mean, when jaws are that long, you can't describe them as tweezer-like, and they can't have forceps-like, and they can't have been moving particularly quickly given their size. But I don't know. Are they still using the forceps jaw style technique that's so familiar in aquatic vertebrates? Yeah. Well, they're probably fairly quick just because of their size. It's sort of like the discussion about tyrannosaurs, right? It doesn't really matter whether they're running or not. They're going to be moving at a fair clip compared to a smaller animal. Mm. Um, 
Mm. Yeah, it just it just strikes me that they they're <clears throat> so absurdly supersized that the, what's the selective pressure for getting so big? Yeah, I mean we know we discuss this with all sorts of things, but yeah. Mm. So we don't have mm. a clear idea of what they're doing or how they're feeding or well, things like this. No, no, not a clue. But we're we're talking about like a handful of specimens. You're yeah. talking about like a like you're talking about like four or five bones from the UK. Yeah, and and like three or four partial skeletons from British Columbia and I th- kind of think that's it right. and that's relevant to the size issue because if we're saying that we've got specimens of this kind of animal that are possibly 26 meters long so we've got we've got so we've got like less than 10 specimens that's that's generous it's way less than that we've got like I don't know six specimens counting all the partial bones right mm-hmm. the biggest of which is estimated at 26 meters long well, when you talk about blue whales, people say 33 meters long. That's the record holder. That's one record holder, yeah. one individual. And we know, you know, that you can find out the details of that specific individual, a, a, a giant female that was killed in South Georgia in I don't know, 1909 or something. But it's like, that's not an average blue whale. She was the equivalent of like an eight foot tall person. Um, so an average blue whale is, you know, in quotes, only. 23 24 25 26 meters long so when you've got a small sample and you're finding animals that are 21 26 meters long ish yeah. you haven't found a record hold have you no. so so there we go yeah yeah oh, well good mystery okay what's next <clears throat> i've written down dracula pterosaur i just want to touch on this only because it's been in the mm-hmm. um the 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 medias in the um, medias so, yeah, yeah and again Again, my interest in this is purely selfish because it overlaps with the stuff I've been involved in. So this is this gigantic um, pterosaur from Romania. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to say much. I'm just going to say that I know it very well. I know all the material well. I know the whole story to what's been done here. What I don't know, of course, is I'm no longer involved in the project for reasons I'm not going to discuss on the podcast. Um, since I've left the project... Obviously, Mark Whitten and I published a paper last year on the neck vertebrae of this pterosaur. Um, other people that are involved in the research have gone on and have produced like a whole replica skeleton, and that's why it's in the news. They haven't got a publication out, but they've um, unveiled this complete skeleton uh, <laughs> at the... Um, uh, Altmultal Museum in Denkendorf, Germany. So they've got this like super robust giant Asdarkid, which they now this project has been led by Matthias Vermeer, who I used to work with, and um, uh, he was claiming a couple of years back that these giant, these giant Nasdaqids were flightless. And he came up with a number of uh, interesting uh, interpretations of super robust, massively thick-necked, short, wing-fingered, flightless pterosaurs. But this new reconstruction isn't like that. It looks like a flight-capable animal with a normally proportioned wing finger. Mm-hmm. And in interviews, Mark Norell at the AMNH, who is now involved in this, it seems, Mark Norell has been saying that it would have had a 12-meter wingspan. Uh, when asked, Mark looked at the Alanguera on the ceiling and said, yeah, I reckon it would have a wingspan like that. <laughs> so, ah, oh, Jesus. This is, just, this is just not a good way to do science. Just 
get a get a replica and a skeleton, have a press conference, talk loads about it, and then yeah, we'll publish a paper on it eventually. Uh, so there's all kinds of claims here that I, I I just can't talk about. I mean, Mark and I have discussed some of it online already, but um, yeah, there you go. I'm not going to comment on that any further. Yeah, I'll just say take take it with a tiny pinch of salt, just a little pinch of salt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's funny, Ashdarkids, like every, like all these sort of extreme animals, attract a lot of odd ideas, right? And it's particularly noticeable when actually they're not all that odd. You know, Ashdarkids are odd in their skull and neck, right? Mm. But their their flight mechanics, their wings and stuff look like other pterosaurs. They're not that different. They're not that interesting mm. in that respect. And they are massively adapted to flight. You can see it in all their bones. I mean, it's not... Um, yeah. There's no point in we, uh, um, yeah. trying to well, knock well, down what has essentially always been speculation. I don't think there's a lot in literature about um, yeah. Ash Darkard's being um, flightless. But I think it's mostly people going, oh, gee whiz, that's too big to fly, right? Right? That, yeah, um, that is basically it. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when again, without going into all the details, when I was involved in this project, um, we searched long and hard and did quite a lot of research on, um, you know, correlates of flightlessness. Whether you could find things in bone microstructure, bone wall thickness. Mm-hmm. You know, shapes of bones, proportions of bones, how you can correlate them with flightlessness. And there are a bunch of things, but they're all the things you would think of. But <laughs> like, 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 okay, think of birds. Like, this one has got a wing half the length of the others, right? Or it weighs 500 kilos and all the others weigh one kilo, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> that That is not the case in the pterosaurs. There's just, there's nothing in this that you could link with flightlessness. And you and I have discussed what the you know, what the the known carpal bones of this animal might mean for wing folding and everything. And it's like all the stuff is is consistent with what's known in flight capable pterosaurs. And when people you 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 get people from outside pterosaur research community who you know say, oh, it would make much more sense if they were flightless, or how could that thing fly? It's like well, there's every indication that is exactly the same as the argument that sauropods are too big to walk on land it's like no there's every indication from every study that's been done on biomechanics functional morphology all the other lines of evidence like trace fossils in ecology and whatnot everything is consistent with the general model we've developed and there is obviously there's there's good science on the biomechanics papers by mike habib <coughs> mark Whitten, <coughs> and others on colin palmer and Liz Martin Silverstone. Liz and I are just wrapping up a paper on pterosaurs, which I think is really awesome. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, generally you find the scepticism is from people that um, aren't know what engineers about. or don't have good, strong biomechanical. They might be good paleontologists in other respects, but they usually lack in those areas. And when you do get people saying this is impossible, like when they've got some strong engineering or biomechanical person on board, it's usually because they're feeding them really odd ideas about weight estimates or something mm. like this, right? You do get people saying, yeah, well, well if Quetzalcoatlus weighed 500 kilos, it couldn't fly. 
Yeah, it didn't weigh 500 kilos, right? <laughs> yeah. That's where yes. you're going wrong. There's your problem. Yeah, yeah. Current <laughs> estimates are 250, 225 to 250 kilos. Yeah. Um, I believe. I, the, the, I would say the biggest driver of these, these comments is, um, uh, what's that thing called where you, you don't, you don't believe in something just because your own personal, in, in, no, oh dear. It's an argument from incredulity. Is the, incredulity uh, is the, is the, I, I think, uh, f- yeah. the logical fallacy of, you know, skeptics like naming all these things. Yeah. I think I'm developing early onset Alzheimer's because yeah. I'm just losing the ability to recall names and stuff all the time. So, any, yeah. Yep. What was I saying? Definitely <clears throat> Alzheimer's. Um, yeah, pers- personal incredulity is the biggest driver of this stuff. So, no, it couldn't fly. It's so much bigger than a bird. <laughs> the biggest bird today is 20 kilos. How could that fly? It's 200 kilos. Good argument. Good argument. Yeah. Go back and tell that to the Wright brothers and show them a picture of a Boeing 747 or something, you know. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So, Dracula the pterosaur. It's a cool pterosaur, but yep. All right. Um, Art Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Now. So Art Bell uh, is no more. He uh, died uh, a couple of days ago. We're talking in uh, April 2018. And I've got mixed feelings about this because now you know who Art Bell is. I'm sure most of our listeners do. Uh, For years and years and years was the host of a uh, radio talk show called Coast to Coast. And then within the past 10-ish years, um, did a whole series of like sort of uh, projects that evolved from that, like uh, Midnight in the Desert and uh, uh, Dream. Oh, geez, I can't remember that either. For God's sake, um, a whole a whole load of other Dream Worlds or something. A whole load of like other radio shows and um, huge audiences. You're talking about like like almost on par with us, like millions, of <laughs> millions. For every every show is like you know two po- an audience of two point seven million. It's on you know. Uh, syndicated to loads of like little radio stations across the United States, and you can listen to it worldwide. And today, uh, a huge, mater- a huge, con- a huge amount of this material is available on you know YouTube uh, and other services. And um, what Art Bell did and his guest is talk about what's technically known as weird shit. So all of the paranormal stuff, all of the crazy stuff, all the fringe conspiracy stuff. Everything, everything from uh, ghosts and spirits and other dimensions to Bigfoot and aliens and time travel and shadow people and black eyed kids and monsters, cryptozoology, all covered all that stuff. And such was the popularity, such was the influence of Art Bell and his radio shows that uh, an argument can be made that he personally was like the biggest driver of the entire culture of paranormal belief and the and the getting out there of these ideas so things like things like black-eyed kids and shadow people and uh dog man and bigfoot dna and area 51 conspiracy theories these are kind of like mainstream part of the culture now but they became known to people interested in that culture and to people in general and 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 from because because of him and and his guests so if you want to live in a rational skeptical universe uh, an argument can be made that like art bell and his buddies are like you know a negative thing like a bad a bad thing that have dragged us into this age of fake news and donald trump and just crap um 
that, that, and I would say that's one perspective. But, right, okay, this is where this might be a bit weird and idiosyncratic and possibly contradictory, I don't know. Okay, I have lots of guilty pleasures in life. I'm not too ashamed of most of them. And one of them is I love this crap. I actually <laughs> love all the paranormal rubbish. And um, I have gone to great trouble to read about it learn about it listen to people talk about it i've been to no end of conferences and meetings and you know met with all these crazy people i know too much about this stuff and i and i actually love really enjoy all the radio shows the art bell stuff i've I've probably listened to all of them um there's a couple that that i've I've got like halfway through and it's like this is just such crap and it's given (laughs) up because because it's obvious that he'll start some of his guests He'll start talking to them, and it's obvious that it's obvious that they live in an elaborate, complex, uh, you know, self-constructed universe. Where, um, just to give a random example, without giving too much away, too much away, there's there's one where he's talking about. Um, it's an old one. It's from the late 1990s, I think, 97. He's talking with this indigenous American person about um, the spirit people or shadow people. And and this guy claims that, oh, yeah, yeah, we know all, you know, his particular group, his tribe, whatever. Yeah, we know all about that. We call those, I don't know, inorganic beings. And uh, they come from the seventh level of this and they associated with that. And you do this incantation to get them. And there's this and this and this. And da, 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 and doesn't just talk about it in terms of like it being an ancient you know spiritual yeah. belief but that it's an actual physical thing that we actually know and and it's and it's linked to you know this particular metabolic pathway and it's you know it's coded in this gene and you know sort of this a, a hugely elaborate pseudoscience construction and it's so obvious it must be obvious even to people that don't have scientific training that that is a person who's constructed a massive thing that isn't necessarily the canon of any particular group of people. It's like that person has taken this to like level 11. You know, they've gone nuts with it. And again and again and again, you, you hear that. It's obvious from the discussion. And I would say the skill of Art Bell is not in going, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> really. But it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then what happened? You know, it's, it's seriously saying, really? Oh, wow. So you're saying, you're saying they come from another dimension really tell me more but but you know playing along with it and bell himself said that many times that this is a form of entertainment so i have mixed feelings about it i think i i do think it would be wrong to just say this is all crap don't listen to it it doesn't exist because no it is what do what do you think i mean is is it a bad thing because it has driven this this us going in this direction of increased belief in crap or is it an inevitable thing that we have to have and it's okay to have it as entertainment now i think it's generally bad to censor yourself and interests and having some fun because there's a bunch of idiots out there right because otherwise we're just going to always be triple guessing how something could be misinterpreted and it'll just Mm. be really boring and i don't want to live in that world so i in many ways think you know what things can be misinterpreted by (laughs) i say idiots but maybe they're not people have all sorts of weird beliefs and aren't necessarily idiots right (laughs) 
and it might be sort of localized to a particular thing. So I don't really want to say idiots all the time, but yeah, people who <laughs> believe in people who believe in crazy things can misinterpret stuff, and so what? You know, that's going to happen. How much that's tied to the modern political scene? I'm pretty skeptical. I don't really know. I don't. I don't know whether it's got much in common, actually. I asked about this on Twitter a few weeks ago, actually. You know, what what overlap is there between sort of the modern alt-right conspiracy theorist and the old UFO and Bigfoot crowd? Mm. And I'm not entirely convinced that there is a lot of overlap. I think... I'm not sure it's well, the same people. Isn't it a lot? Or the same sorts of, of people, even. A lot, a lot of um, belief and interest in fringe claims is actually more leftish than yes. than rightish. I mean, you know, the like anti-vaxxers. I, I'm pretty sure there's a strong correlation with them being sort of like new agey hippie type lefty people, <laughs> rather than neo-Nazi far-righty people. So Yes, and if you go to one of these conferences, like you go Weird Weekend or the now-defunct Uncon, mm. I'm going to guess that you're not there with a whole bunch of extreme right-wingers. You're just not. I mean, there's no. a lot of, uh, yeah, as you say, hippies, right? There's a lot of pot being smoked, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm not convinced that the modern extreme right is actually all that related to this stuff so i'm not too worried about it um I, yeah i love it too it's really entertaining it's entertaining stuff it's ghost stories basically and but much bigger um you know bigger a huge subject matter broader funnier more interesting because it's so deep and so um broad so yeah, i don't have any problem with it yeah and I, and I would say that like so so i'm always i'm concerned when i interact with say for, let's say for example take one very specific example flat earthers and then the argument is well yeah but that's only become mainstream literally this claim has been made literally the claim has been made that that's only become mainstream because of art bell and it's like well hold on you and i've discussed this before the number of flat earthers in the world is Probably not necessarily more than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. It's just that thanks to our connectedness through the internet, they're visible and findable and have a voice. But the people that turn to that idea or become enamored with any of these strange ideas, have they have a sufficient number of them been switched onto this idea because of listening to coast to coast or listening to a certain radio host or you know whatever it's like no they probably already were pretty crazy and probably already held those ideas if some people have been turned this makes it sound like some kind of like a, a you know terrorism jihadism style thing if they have been like you know sort of converted and um radicalized um <laughs> How many people are you talking about? You, I, I think, I think that if you like, like I said, if we're talking about an audience of millions, literally millions for these shows, literally millions, low millions, two or three million people per show or whatever, that doesn't mean you have two or three million people that are now turned on to Bigfoot DNA and Dogman and Area Fifty One conspiracy theories and Flat Earth. It's probably like a tens, tens of individuals that there's going to be hundreds and hundreds that are thinking about it and are aware of it. 
but it doesn't mean they're necessarily converting to it and renouncing everything else. And, uh, you know, even if they do, what's the, you know, I think that the argument that this is a significant harm is lacking. You know, they a lot of these people who believe something odd about these things, uh, they're not generally anti-science. Some of them get anti-science. But they're often very specifically, well, these, these scientists in this particular thing, which I know about, have got it all wrong. But mm. they're, they're interested in science more generally and will generally, um, you know, go along with the scientific consensus on other things. So yeah. I'm not sure that they're, um, yeah, that any of this stuff is particularly negative. Yeah, and some of the people that you might regard as kind of leaders of the movement or powerful voices in the movement, if, if it can be considered a movement, are actually full on 100% like the best, most rational voices you've ever heard. I mean, uh, I, I've, okay, I don't know, a bit, bit of a strong statement, maybe. <laughs> but, well, I'm thinking of like, so George Carlin has always been like a, a, a really sort of important voice in all this stuff, like, you know, talk radio and this this kind of mix between entertainment and this sort of weirdy, weird shit stuff. And, oh, my God, such a clued-on guy and so sceptical. Joe Rogan, you know, the, probably, the I think, the biggest podcaster in the world, um, gets has gotten a similar amount of criticism similar kind of criticism to Art Bell, as in, like, you know, he's he's helped mainstream a lot of this crazy stuff, has made more people believe in things like Flat Earth and stuff. But it's like, if you listen to anything he says or, you know, see what he does on stage or TV or whatever, again, this is someone who's, like, actually really well-grounded in rationalism and how you should treat unusual claims and has a true, strong scepticism. Um... I think uh, I don't. Let's not start talking about Joe Rogan because I go off at a tangent for ages. I like I, quite, I like quite a lot of his stuff, but um, so you seem to be coming at this from a single angle to me, which is like it's worth it for the sake of entertainment, and I'm not prepared to see it destroyed just because it's some people think this stuff is too weird to to you know do any good for us. Yeah, and no, I don't think it's just mindless entertainment either. It's it's it helps us think about how we weigh evidence and things like this. So, you know, given crazy theory, what what evidence is brought to bear and why do we think that is relevant <clears throat> evidence? And why do we think that the crazy people's evidence is no good, right? Mm. And so I do think it's a it's always an interesting exercise in essentially philosophy of science. What are you doing? Why do you think this evidence is right and yeah. that evidence is wrong? Yeah, I will so say, though, that I do think there is a bit of a... Conspiracy theories are a bit different, and I... I I love people like that think UFOs are real, Bigfoot's real, and that sort of thing. And go look, like yeah, go on, yeah, that's great. But once you start getting into conspiracy theories, all these people are lying about it deliberately to keep us down. I do think you start to get a bit of a, you can start to get a bit of a spiral of, I don't know. It's pers- it's it's feeling falsely persecuted, and that's mm. not good. I mean. The Nazis were, um, what's this? The what's that? God, Godwin's law always compare things to Hitler, but it's actually very relevant because mm-hmm. the Nazis, Nazism was essentially a conspiracy theory, and a, quite a you know straight down the line one, right? The mm-hmm. Jews are out to control the world, and we've got this book that shows it, and there we go. That's how Nazism gets started. This weird. 
conspiracy theory they've got. Mm. So I'm less keen on conspiracy <clears throat> theories than I am on just weird, crazy yeah. ideas. Well, that 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 I think is it. Uh, um, that makes it appropriate to mention something that I think is quite important, which is that uh, it, it's claimed that things are getting worse, and that conspiracy theories and belief in the paranormal and weird shit and stuff is on the rise and it's a problem but it's like if you look at what people said in the past what people thought in the past <laughs> it's like it wasn't better in the past <laughs> it was it was it was way way worse oh yeah so you mentioned okay let's not talk about nazis but you mentioned you know jewish people the the things that were said about jewish people going back 50 100 years in europe it's like, oh my God, the level of conspiracy and, and BS that was said was, yeah, it's, it's like conspiratorial thinking was the norm. It wasn't like a weird set of people. It was like that was the general thinking among other sectors of other, yeah. other, other populations of people that like I, it, I, I, I hesitate to even mention any of the things that were said because they're now, they're now so distasteful to us. But they're sort of basically about Jewish people not being fully human or the way in which they have to rejuvenate themselves by drinking the blood of babies or kind of stuff like that. You know, views that were actually normal and common in Western Europe, um, you know. <laughs> go, not going back not going back that far. I mean, <laughs> I think obviously things become enlightened within the last 150 years or so but um yeah it's like conspiratorial thinking was was the norm and has been the norm throughout human uh history yeah and beliefs so. in utter bunk have been much more normal right yeah and so yeah. therefore yeah all this stuff is actually getting better i think the internet has just provided a you know a way to find all these crazy beliefs and these people to collect around their crazy beliefs. Mm. And some of those are really fascinating and fun and some of them are a bit like, Ugh. Yeah. So if you take away what John and I both said there, um, that basically things like Art Bell, Art Bell's Coast to Coast radio show is yeah, maybe a bit bad, but but not bad enough for us to want to get rid of it. You know, This stereotype that scientific people hate all the crazy stuff and just want it destroyed and expunged from the record is absolutely not true i i i believe i would say that it's in some way enriched my life and entertained me being interested in this stuff maybe i'm a broken person and everything about me and the way i think is wrong but there you go so a list a list for example just a list of my from my favorite things from coast to coast some of these you'll be familiar with this won't take too long but just a couple of things because i've got to mention some of these and it's the only time i'll ever do it have you ever heard of the case of Dr. Jonathan Reed and his the the guy who his dog was killed by an alien? No. So, so this oh my god, it's incredible. Dr. Jonathan Reed is walking through the woods, Denalinlair, one day with his pet dog, and then he sees in the woods a, uh, a like not very big, like a human-sized black triangular craft just just floating there in the woods, and then he realizes it's a it's a like a one individual unit spacecraft and he sees the alien and it and it melts his dog turns his dog to like a powder so he gets so angry he picks up a rock and he kills the alien smashes it on the head and he wraps it up in some tarpaulin by the way he films all of this it's all filmed hmm. i don't know how i don't know how he filmed it with a 
because I think it was pre-mobile phones. But um, he takes the little alien back home in his garage and uh, and he films him like unwrapping it and you know looking at its body. He's got all these detailed shots of its face and everything. And uh, it's still alive. And he puts it in the freezer and it comes out of the freezer. And that's normally where the story ends. That's the Jonathan Reed story. Um, but the full, his full story, which he goes into on several episodes of Coast to Coast, is like the alien like became friends with him and uh, is sort of like a, a trans-dimensional entity that can like walk through walls if it wants and stuff. And it gives him this special little thing called the key of Chalacost or something. It's like a <laughs> special magic ring that allows him to go through space-time. And uh, just, and the story just goes off on this crazy tangent. But the um, his initial film of finding the craft in the woods he's like hyperventilating it's really it's kind of like you know it feels like it's got genuine emotion to it it's really quite a disturbing piece of film but jonathan reed's story i always like that um art bell spoke several times to a guy called bugs who was a, a farmer who told a story about how in the 1970s he shot two bigfoots and um discovered they had six fingers they looked a bit like people with down syndrome so he became worried that he'd actually committed murder <laughs> so he buried the bodies and uh, then he gave the the dress of where they're buried to art bell and art bell said he'd chase that at one time but keep it secret um there's this famous phone call that art bell got in 1997 someone who claimed that they were a technician at area 51 and they're like they're sort of like this is to panic and then they start to cry as they talk and, and then they're sort of going off on this having this full-on you know um emotional breakdown as because there are forces beyond look at they know where i am and i'm not going to be ever very long and, and and as they and as oh it's so well done because the, it escalates and escalates and they're getting more and more emotional and then the entire network went down the whole flipping satellite thing and everything went <laughs> off the air right now that I'm pretty sure it was a total coincidence, a total coincidence. But it's just, wow, how well-timed. you just seen that. And then later on, the guy who did this phoned back and said, yeah, that was me. I was just acting. <laughs> <laughs> then Mel Ketchum has been a guest a couple of times. Mel Ketchum, who some of you know, this infamous, terrible DNA study. Allegedly, loads of samples of Bigfoot. Um, and she's saying right from the start that Bigfoot is like a human, a hybrid between a human and an unknown entity, which is clearly the Nephilim from the Bible, which is you know a big thing she's really into. And she also talks about Dogman. She thinks Dogman's totally real. Uh, I love Dogman. I think it's so crazy. And that Dogman shows that this isn't the world we were always told it was. Uh, Art Bell's got some connection with the Heaven's Gate cult because apparently his talking about hail bop and what it could mean has, has been linked to that but if you actually listen to what he says nah it's just they, they were they were crazy anyway mike cleland i think has been on art bell's show he's maybe been on george norrie's which is like the follow-up to art bell's show and mike cleland is this guy who thinks right now you know your gray aliens from zeta reticuli right you know your zeta reticulans well they can psychically disguise themselves as owls so if you're out <laughs> In the woods, or if you're in your bedroom at night and you see an owl, it's a grey alien, and it's disguising itself as an owl, and there's occasions when people have, they thought they might have seen an alien, 
but they saw what looked like an owl. It was actually just an alien using like the owl as a psychic cloaking device. Or there's a case where you know a young woman's out in the woods and she sees a grey alien run away, and in her mind, ow, 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 ow. Mike Cleland wrote a book called The Messengers, all about this: owls and aliens. Um, and it's also thanks to Art Bell that, oh, Jesus Christ, David Polides and the whole missing 411 stuff, which um, is fascinating and amazing. And there's so many crazy stories uh, around the world, but obviously mostly in North America, about um, you know, peculiar and often unexplained disappearances of people. But to persistently imply, as David Polides has done, that they are linked and part of some common phenomenon that's inexplicable is meh it's like <laughs> no it's like these people have gone missing by a thousand different independent agents and to just consistently imply that the lady that commits the lady that disappears in a hotel in los angeles and the man who drowns in a canal in birmingham are part of some same overarching thing that's involves who knows what yeah yeah but again, I love that stuff, and I've gone to you know ridiculous lengths to to learn about it, and uh, maybe that's why I'm such a broken person. But um, maybe it's enriched me and made me a better person. Who's to say? Well, I think it's good. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I think it's good. I think it's good. <laughs> so that's yeah, from my my favourite quote from Spaced. <clears throat> We've done that. We've done that one before. Tangent. All right. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. Good. Um, right, let's move on to cash for questions then. Uh, yeah. I think we'll cash get through questions. all the cash for questions Holy that mojito. we're ever going to have. Ooh, the final three. The final now, three. I'm sure we've missed some. So if we do this and someone says, well, what about my cash for question? We'll probably have to do it because yeah, this is all we've got in the database. There's a whole bunch I've been sent over Patreon. Apologies if I haven't dealt with them. Remind me. I, I can't find them because, you know, they're lost in the mist of time. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so this one's from Gerald Bannon. Please discuss the latest developments and implications of efforts to rewild Aurochs to Western Europe. I know you don't like to delve into genetics. It's not that we don't like, we just don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> But in exchange for my hard-earned dollars, 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 please indulge me. I'm very curious about auroch anatomy and behavior and their role in the ecosystem. Uh, their numbers would need to be controlled by a what large predator. Uh, please speculate on animals which could fill this niche. Niche. Look how he's written it. He's even written in niche. <laughs> well played. <laughs> well played, Gerald. Well played. Sorry, he doesn't imply that this would... He says an, an article would suggest their numbers would be controlled by a large predator. Not that that's an absolute fact. So there we go. Um. So. Hmm. So. Speculate. Okay. The Uruk or Uroxen, Boss Primogenius... Famously hunted to extinction in 1627, the last individuals living in the Jack Toro, I don't know how to pronounce that either, forest, Jack Toro, Jack Toro forest in Poland. Um, Durok was a fascinating 
wild member of the cattle family. Well, first of all, it's ancestral to modern cattle, which immediately leads us to the thing we're not going to discuss, the species issue, because Bos primogenius is the Uruk, Bos taurus is the domestic cattle. But if domestic cattle are descendants of Uruk, and they indisputably are, mm. um, is the Uruk extinct? And some people say, no, it's not. We've just got millions and millions of domesticated Uruk. Um, whether Uruk were domesticated two or three or more times or just once has been the subject of substantial debate, as it is with every single domesticate animal. Um, but most evidence indicates that there was a uh, domestication event that happens in Turkey or thereabouts and an independent one that happened in India and there may have been another one that happened in North Africa because the Uruk's historical range was really big uh, across most of North Africa, across the whole of Europe from the British Isles all the way east to uh, certainly Central Asia and possibly places like, well, northern Pakistan, northern India and stuff. So officially extinct in 1627, and it was a, a really big, impressive cattle, strongly sexually dimorphic, uh, males almost black, females rather smaller and far browner. Um, members of both sexes have got these long, elegant, curving horns. A big male could be 1.8 meters tall at the shoulder. Hmm. Just think of that, a giant cow, 1.8 meters hmm. tall at the shoulder, and weigh about a ton so this is a big, impressive animal, a, 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 a widespread, abundant um, mega herbivore, which is obviously not cold adapted. So it's not living in it's not as cold adapted as animals like, you know, bison and woolly rhino and mammoths and stuff. But having said that, cattle are really hardy. I mean, they, their ability to deal with crazy cold temperatures is really impressive. The amount of heat they put out is crazy as well. Um, in fact, some of the weird features of their bodies, like the presence of big dewlaps and humps and things, have been argued to be uh, thermoregulatory because they just produce so much heat they have to keep losing it, deliberately losing it. So um, the fact that we've lost these like purebred, distinctive, giant-sized cattle uh, – even if we have got like smaller, you know, domestic versions of them, we've lost those giant ones. There's long been an interest in resurrecting or what used to be called reconstituting them back into life by hybridizing domestic breeds that look a bit that look specifically, you know, particularly Uruk like mm. and uh, thereby, you know, um, creating them anew, as it were. And there have been many, many efforts to do this. The most famous is that of. Um, Heinz and Lutz Heck in the 1920s and 30s. Now, they were Nazis, and they're literally Nazis. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that reason, there's all kinds of <laughs> obvious issues attached to their philosophy and what they were trying to do and why they were trying to do it. To be honest, I haven't read much about what what their philosophy meant for, you know, whether they, whether they were trying to... No, it's a tangent, tangent. Let's not mm. follow the Nazi rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Never so, follow the Nazi rabbit. <laughs> know what I mean. Uh, um, yeah, so, so they... These two brothers, Heinz and Lutz, they started independently even though they're working on the same project they deliberately started two different herds of Uruk one in Munich one in Berlin and they used different source cattle and uh, they produced uh, one of the herds died out I think the I think the Munich one died out or maybe the Berlin one I think the Munich Doesn't one died matter. out what? Doesn't matter 
doesn't matter. One of them died out. And um, but the other one, the other herd, is descendants are still around today, and they're called heck cattle. And they were trying to reconstitute the Oroch, crossed all these different cattle that they got from all over the place, different breeds across Europe, and they produced a cattle that doesn't look anything like an Oroch at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's really big. It's sometimes dark. It's got long horns. But it's like there are loads of other cattle that look more like Uruk than heck cattle do. Uh, there's some that are shaggy coated, there's some that are short coated. Um, the, there's so much variation in head shape that yeah, everything I've just described is not true of Uruk. So Uruk are not just really big, and they don't just have big horns. They're also, as I say, strong sexual dimorphism. Males pretty much black, females is brown with some black points and stuff on the body the auroch has got a distinctive long kind of dorsally flat rectangular head which a lot of these domestic heck cattle don't they've got like a far shorter face they've got like a huge dewlap the heck cattle don't so the heck project uh wasn't tremendously successful but since the mid early 2000s since, since like about 2005 as there's been an increasing uh, dialogue as goes re- so-called rewilding projects across Europe. You know, let's reintroduce beavers and wolves and lynxes, white-tailed eagles, bison, <clears throat> European bison, obviously, um, oh, which is another link to the cattle story because it turns out lots of European bison aren't bison at all. They're actually just cows that look a bit like bison. They're hybrids. Um, long phase of long history of hybridization there. That's a tangent. Um, yeah, there's there's been this increasing movement across all the european countries where we've got wild spaces should we be reintroducing the original fauna and should we be introducing the animals that are now technically extinct like the uruk so there are going on for something like oh i don't know there's sort of five or six independent projects to do what what the hex did to collect cattle that look uruk like and to basically keep crossing them until you end up with something that's you know a, a a better match for true original Uruk. Um, there's independent projects in like uh, Portugal and Spain and the Netherlands. Um, I've read a, I've read a bit about some of them. Mm. Uh, the one that I think is most promising is called the Tauros program, which has been running since 2008. So two different organisations, one called Rewilding Europe and one called the uh, what the Dutch Taurus Foundation, Taurus as in the scientific name for the uh, cattle, T-A-U-R-U-S, Rewilding Europe and the Dutch Taurus Foundation formed a thing called the Tauros Program, Tauros spelt with O-S at the end. Um, they've used, uh, I think, about six European cattle breeds, Portuguese, Maronisa, um, Croatian Bascarian cattle, Scottish Highland cattle, uh, Italian, what's it called? Mara, Maramina Primitiva. Primit, primitive, Maramina Primitiva. So it's a sort of vaguely Uruk like uh, cattle. Spanish fighting bulls, which are among the most Uruk like of all cattle. Interesting. Interestingly, they, they've like basically been hybridizing these and been going through a set phases of different generations. They've now got hundreds of animals in this in this program. They're doing genetic screening as well, and uh, they hope that um, I think they're projected by about 2025 to end up with animals that look like Uruk. 
And certainly by now, I've, I've really, I'm not going to Google it now, but I, I'm pretty sure that 2018, they're meant to have like their phase three animals that are meant to look kind of like 85% Uruk-like. This, of course, has immediate and obvious parallels with the Quokka project, which I also know a bit about and I've uh, never, never been impressed with because all they seem to be doing is creating <laughs> increasingly faded-looking <laughs> zebra that, <laughs> that don't ever have any of the key features of the original Quokka that they're trying to um, resurrect. The Quokka has like you know, a, a dark brown body and white legs with basically no striping. Uh, and they're just getting sort of increasingly washed out plains zebras. Um, but that's, that's a whole other tangent now. Talk about the Quagra project another time. Um, I did know one of the main people involved in it, but um, the, yeah, this Uruk thing, I, I just, I, I don't know what, what the animals are actually looking like now, but it, but it seems they are, there's a big effort. We're talking about like hundreds of animals involved. There's in over 450 animals involved in this project. And obviously they've gone to a lot of trouble to collect Uruk like animals and do lots of crossbreeding and genetic screening and whatnot. So they're going to get something out of it. And then presuming that they, get the actual permission to release these very dangerous and very big animals into these various wild places in the Netherlands and Portugal and Spain and wherever else uh, is prepared to take them, presuming that's going to happen. Um, it's not particularly different from the various feral and wild living cattle that are already present in various places across Europe. I mean, like here in England, we have the famous Chillingham park cattle the white the white park cattle which have been looking pretty much the same and have been living living wild which is not the same as wild but you know sort of living not in a sort of human constrained way really we've had them for hundreds of years and they are dangerous you you if you went into a field with them you would be in danger of being pursued trampled gored and thrown to the air um and obviously, there's loads of places in the in the world, including in Europe, that have got um, bison as well, which are also, you know, killers mm -hmm. if the uh, opportunity is right. So, I don't think it's that different. I don't think it's that, I, I don't think it's a big deal. It's not like we're going to introduce bears to Oxford. It's not that kind of situation where it's like, yeah, but the animal only has to walk for 20 minutes and it's in the town centre. It's not like that. Um, it's not different from what is already out there. Um, so. Uh, so yeah. that's the question. So what's yeah. the point? Yeah. <laughs> so it's well, not that different to. So, I, you know, the whole species thing is a bit. Who really cares? But um, so it's possible that domestic in, in, ca domestic cattle <laughs> are several <laughs> split up. Now, obviously, there've been the domestication process. Clearly, does something odd to animals right mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, i'd have to guess that it's something about making them more plastic where we are selecting for animals that are quick to mold maybe right so you know oh that one's quite different to its parent and has something i want mm. maybe this is what's going on and therefore you end up with uh, more phenotypic plasticity than mm. you would mm. otherwise and so you Maybe you're loosening up constraints on what would be in wild populations. I don't know. That's just a guess. So I don't think breeding something that looks like an more like the auroch will actually be a mm. replacement for it. 
Mm. <laughs> you may as well just release one, <clears throat> just cattle that look vaguely like it, right? Okay, so not mm. some crazy breed, but just some cattle. Wouldn't they do pretty much the same things? Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. and it's already, they're already there in a lot yeah. of these places. So yeah. what, what are we doing this for? Are we doing it for our own satisfaction? Yeah, that one looks like an auroch. They used to live here, you know. Well, not, not those ones because they're no more closely related to aurochs than any other cattle. <laughs> but they look more like them. It's a bit like your um, jack horn, a chick, dino chicken, right? It's not, yeah. I, don't, I don't see the point, especially when we've got things that fulfill very much the same sort of niche in an ecosystem that are genetically related, <laughs> the same, right? Yeah. As this thing you're going to um, release. It seems like a big effort for something that is basically a cosmetic little stunt. Mm. Now, that mm. sounds very cruel to people that are deeply involved with this stuff, I guess, but I, I don't know. I just, what, what's the point? Yep. Um, well, sad to say I fully agree 100% with all of that uh, because um, so to live wild and to have the behavioral characteristics that we might like for an Uruk, your cattle would have to – they'd have to literally know how to survive in the wild. They would have had to develop strategies of like you know where to find water and where to seek shelter in harsh weather and you know which plants they can eat and whatnot. Well, if you've got generations of cattle that are already living in some of these places, and you do, you have got wild living cattle, as we've already said, they've already solved that problem. They've literally, that's like, they've got their own culture, right? They've got yeah. those behavioral things they've evolved or developed or learned. Well, you have to put that back into your new animals that you're releasing into the wild. So <laughs> the ones you've already got that are doing that, get rid of them let's put those over to the side and we put these new ones in place now we've got to give them a little bit of time these new ones to get used to it um and, and that's going to happen that's not a problem you have to make sure they don't keep hybridizing with any other locally occurring animals to dilute your gene pool of your like new good looking animals um now on the subject of the gene pool at the moment from what i've read the uh, and this links to what you just said about variable phenotype the um the 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 jesus christ the genes i'm allergic to the word genes the genes of the um reconstituted populations these uruk mimicking neo uruk is just not at all similar to the ancient uruk and of course we do have their dna you know it's been sequenced from from ancient bones it's like not even close it's like as you'd expect given that you're hybridizing uh, you know, six or more breeds of modern cattle, which all have their own very complex histories. Mm. Um, yeah, you're creating you're creating a mess, and it's very difficult to. I think the hardest thing with these projects is to um, create, uh, you know, breed like things that mimic a certain morphology that you want, and then have it breed true and not have selection take effect in an actual well, no not rat no um genetic drift take effect rather not, not selection genetic drift where it's like, oh it turns out that because you've got uh watusi cattle from africa uh, have, been, have been involved in this program because um because of their you know particular characters their body shape size and horn form which is desirable but it's like watusi cattle have got a load of features that you don't want in your uruk and off the top of my head, I can't think what they are, but like they're, they're, I think they're all brown and stuff, and they've got reticulated patterns. Well, can you imagine if all your Uruks, like after a few generations, this is like coming, 
this is just just happens that that's come to the fore i think that's really hard and whether they'll succeed in maintaining true breeding Uruk. and and ultimately and the other point i want to make and, you, and you've already covered it or touched on it is that it is it is essentially nothing more than cosmetic i can't think of it's anything else than cosmetic because if you want if you honestly think that you should have a uruk shaped mega herbivore that fills an uruk role in the ecosystem well you don't need the uruk to do that there's not enough variation in known cattle whether we're talking about domesticate cattle or those you know any any of the species from within that section of the family tree it's like you could probably introduce yeah you could just have feral you could have chillingham cattle or spanish spanish wild bulls and they'd be looking enough alike they'd feel the same role in the ecosystem as goes breaking up vegetation and browsing and grazing and you know whatever they do in the ecosystem when people have had other discussions about rewilding thinking here of australia and north america people have like been far more open to how much slack they're prepared to accept. So, for example, Tim Flannery has been saying for years, you know, we need mega herbivores in the Australian environment. Well, you're not going <laughs> to, no one's going to reintroduce diprotodon for obvious reasons. So, so what, what do you do? Well, do you introduce hippos or rhinos or, you know, those that discussion has been that that point has been made quite seriously. Do you need? Let's not go off on a tangent on this one too yeah. much. But do you need a mega herbivore in the Australian? Uh, you know the, the relevant wild environments you're not going to get diprotodon so do you introduce hippos and the people that would go down that route as far as it could go say yeah yeah you do yeah it doesn't okay the, the fact that it was diprotodon is irrelevant we just need a mega herbivore and here if you i think if you're honestly trying to rewild much of rewilding is more to do with the shape of an environment how it's maintained and its structural and ecological diversity you don't necessarily need boss primogenius that died in 1627 you just need a big ass cow so, <laughs> so it does feel wholly cosmetic wholly cosmetic oh and in this case he's got the extra special step of the cows are actually the literal descendants of these things right <laughs> yeah so yeah. they yeah. are the same thing really they're the same genetic pool they're not a different genetic pool they're a weirdly selected genetic pool of them but you're not changing that genetic stuff <laughs> You're still so, going to have the weird, just selected genetic pool, and if and if left to survive in the wild for several generations, mm. they self-select to become uruk-like. I mean, you you get you get a bit more of a mess, as I said, genetic drift and you know consequences of the specific ancestry of the animals. But um, you know you'll have shaggy-coated ones and unusual colours that you might not like, but you will generally have animals that, you know, they've learned to live in the wild, they evolve some sort of culture, and they will look more wild and shaggy and dangerous. And I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And then, okay, so to touch on one final point. So I think you and I broadly, mm, broadly agree on that. Um, Gerald says that. Yeah. Yeah. Gerald touches on um, what it would need. He mentions this need to be controlled by a large predator. Now, this is one of my big bugbears with rewilding. Don't get me wrong. I'm broadly a supporter of of rewilding. I think, you know, where possible and where feasible, we should try and do this if we can. Um, But one of the uh, one of my main issues with it is that people become obsessed with introducing their favorite animal or their favourite organism, doesn't have to be an animal, of course, 
without thinking that the support system that you need for that given organism is quite complex. And today is, without swearing too much, is royally screwed, right? Um, For example, let's say you want to introduce a, let's say you want to reintroduce wolves to an English county. This is a discussion that's happening right now. This has been seriously seriously discussed. Well, okay, so you think, well, wolves eat deer. There's no loads of deer there, no problem. Yeah, but wolves don't just eat deer. Mm. And there are times of the year when wolves literally can't eat deer due to the behavior of the wolves themselves, because they're constrained to a certain area for whatever reason, and the behavior of the deer themselves. And then there's other factors involved, you know, human disturbance and what the weather's like, blah, 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 blah. So it's like, if you're a wolf, you don't eat deer every day. Sometimes you go and eat cats, or you eat rabbits, or you just eat carrion, or you eat berries, or you eat nothing at all. So once you put in those other things, you need other stuff. You need like there to be, so the example I just mentioned there, you need meso predators. So you need a healthy population of like wild cats. And I didn't just mean domestic cats, by the way, I meant like wild cats there. So you need like your meso carnivores, your, your, your small carnivores that, that big predators routinely prey on. You kind of need that in place. But then to support those, you then need like a rich fauna of like, you know, rodents and mid-sized things and shrews and birds and all that kind of stuff. And then to support that, you also need like a huge healthy population of arthropods and slugs and, you know, fungi and all that stuff. And in at least some of these places, at least some, not all, at least some of these places, they just don't have that. Nobody's putting work into making sure that there's like, you know, uh, a metric tonne of slugs <laughs> per, <laughs> per meter <laughs> they're just thinking about we want wolves we want eagle owls we want urochs and to maintain we know for good reason loads of brilliant studies done in uh, places like poland and yellowstone we know that for you to have healthy populations of mega herbivores and a healthy functional ecosystem you need predation on those herbivores so like you know the, the the famous situation is the yellowstone deer where they killed all the wolves and all the bears and everything actually maybe they didn't kill the bears but they certainly killed all the wolves so the deer were like this is great this is great we can have as many babies as we like as much sex as we like we can eat as much as we like so the deer eat everything down to the ground and there's no greenery left and the whole ecosystem dies the groundwaters of low quality there are no butterflies anymore you know loads of these weird knock-on effects this idea of trophic cascades that we've at least touched on a couple of times in the podcast so they reintroduce wolves that means you get this thing called an ecology of fear a deer can't just like stand next to a baby tree and eat it to death it can only snack on it because it's like constantly alert you know it has to run away this basically results in a healthier, happier flora, which then means you have like groundwater improves in quality for loads of reasons to do with the effects of vegetation on the ground and like loads more butterflies, loads of weird knock on effects like that. And again, in a lot of these places, they might be talking about reintroducing Uruk to some um, green park in the Netherlands, but are those places that have got healthy populations of, of wolves and bears? That, that do the natural culling on those animals that keeps you know this is this is a weird ethical argument because some people say yeah but that's not fair on the on the, the herbivores they should live you know luxurious predator predator free lives and predators are nasty and bad and you know we've got rid of all our predators <laughs> but from the functional point of view in maintaining healthy ecosystems you have to have herbivores killed horribly by predators for the good of the herbivores themselves 
well, the good of the populations, not the individuals. Uh, <laughs> that's what, obviously what I mean. Yeah. Because um, if you end up dead, that's no good for you, is it? Um, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> Generally Sorry, rejected Daisy, in human. You, uh, you have to be culled. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think this is, we've got to get to the question of what are we trying to do here? What are, what's our aim? Because if the aim is essentially to have a zoo, like a big zoo, where you go and look at the, the funny-looking animals, like, well, that, <laughs> that something looked like that used to live here. <laughs> and you know what? That's legitimate. You know, we've bred a whole bunch of animals, which is the, look like the original fauna that was here, and you can go around, you can drive around in a jeep and have a look at them. Well, yeah. you know, okay. It's sort of Jurassic Park, right? Mm. Well, okay. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Sure, mm. why not? Um, but if the purpose is to preserve biodiversity and in the long term, right, we mm. want to make sure that we have enough sort of wild areas with the right sort of balanced ecosystem that they will survive for the next, well, survive the current ecological crisis, which is something I think most bio people into biology think is what we kind of should be doing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so, okay, mm -hmm. we're going to lose a whole bunch of stuff in... Um, you know, the Amazonian rainforest and all this stuff, but maybe we can create some other bits anew which can support a whole bunch of diversity that might keep some of this diversity around. I think that's a different game, and this sort of the Auroch and yeah. that sort of stuff is not <clears> necessary. <throat> but then we might get into weirder things like, okay, so manage it then. You know, go out and predate them yourself. Like, go and kill weak ones, try and mimic a wolf. <laughs> sure they've thought of this this is not new right well that 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 again raises an interesting issue which which could be the subject of a whole another discussion so let's not but um humans are part of nature humans have been uh, an important force in certainly in western europe for thousands and thousands of years yeah yet the number of us that would go and hunt Uruk is <laughs> probably... Oh, yeah, probably no, it'd have to be done yeah. as, like, park management, right? Yeah. Because also, hunters by themselves aren't a good way to do this because they've got guns and they tend to kill the biggest, most impressive ones. Mm -hmm. And actually, mm -hmm. you want to be doing it the other way around. That's right. You want to be saying, oh, you, you, look, you look small and weak, I'm going to kill you, which is not <laughs> something people like to do. It's a rubbish trophy. <laughs> yeah. It also feels wronger, right, for some reason. Whatever it is, yeah. even though you've got a gun... That's Killing a big, defenseless. impressive one feels well, like a much more fair one. fight, right? Yeah. yeah. The one that walks up to you, that's the one you should kill. <laughs> the easiest one. This one's friendly. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, but you could do that. You can do this, right? The park management, right. You go out and you kill the weakest ones. You kill the ones that are... You go and scare them, see which ones run away the slowest. You're dead. <laughs> um, but this could be a way of doing it. And if you want to preserve predators, I suppose you could feed them. I don't know. Because there's not just, yeah, there's just not enough um, wild area to support the kinds of ecosystems you need to support, like the the depth of ecosystems you need, that we need to, mm. we need, that we want to preserve. So we kind of need to put it on artificial support somehow. And intervening like this is, I think, the only way I can think of doing it. Yeah, it's kind of labor-intensive and 
a bit counterintuitive, but I think it's very expensive and expensive. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. So to wrap up on that, really, then, like my essential thinking is that if we if we do have sufficient wild space, which is that's your first criterion, um, and in some places we do across Europe. Places like the UK, it's really hard to think that there are places big enough for big animals like bears and uruk, um, really, nowadays. Um, but if you do have big enough spaces, then I think trying to rewild is probably a worthy aim, but the, that it's, it's not a good idea in the long term to, um, to fixate on single items of the ecosystem so it's not good to fixate on let's bring back the uroc or let's bring back the lynx or let's bring back the hen harry or whatever it's like you have to be part of a bigger program where you're working in uh, conjunction with other partners so and i and i okay um lack of information here i just haven't looked into this it could be for all we know that these tauros program guys are in constant dialogue with the um, the wolf conservation people. The w- wolves are spreading across at least parts of Europe, you know, like France and Germany. Um, certainly France, I think, I think Germany as well. And the lynxes, lynxes are in some parts of Europe. There's areas where they have been able to expand their range. At the same time, there are other areas, you know, Scandinavia has got is determined to destroy all of its wolves um but yeah so so you there should be this this partnership this dialogue going on i think i think that's the way to to take it um and then also how this fits into an uh, i'll stop there i'll stop there yeah Mm. okay next question yeah so thanks for that question gerald that was interesting and uh, yeah next question yeah yeah okay this is from sam barnett it's about glands darren do you know anything about glands I do. Good. <laughs> is sebaceous gland a homo- homologous term? Specifically thinking of the uropygeal? Uropygeal? Pygeal gland, yeah. Yeah. Glands in birds and the gular gland in crocodiles. Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, you misread it because Sam speci- he went to great trouble to write an homologous term, not a homologous term. He does yeah. talk English properly. Yeah, I'm not sure about that rule. <laughs> Uh, well, whatever. Yeah, I think it comes from if you say if you don't pronounce your H's because you're really posh. Well, so you say homologous. Isn't there an argument <laughs> that it's actually technically correct that H functions as a vowel, and an historian and hotel? Apparently, those are all etymologically correct. Well, I don't know. It's and, not much of a vowel. If you try and stick it in a place where a vowel would normally go, you can't pronounce it. Pa! You and your crazy <laughs> details. <laughs> details. A lot of these rules are just dumb, and we should reject them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what... And... I can't think of a word begins with H. Anyway, okay. Um, short answers, no. Is sebaceous gland an homologous term? So skin glands. Uh, let's think of this in a. Let's think of a tetrapod tree. You got your living amphibian type things have a glandular skin, and of course they produce mucuses and toxins and all kinds of assorted chemical compounds, loads of stuff. But is the condition of living amphibians at all similar to what was present in the, you know, ancestral tetrapods? 
the animals that were ancestral to living amphibians, but also to amniotes. And we haven't got a clue, not a clue what the deal is there. I would think that if you go back along the amphibian lineage and look at temnospondyls and assorted fossil groups, yeah, I'm pretty sure you would have, you know, skin glands producing mucuses and all kinds of stuff like that. Whether there were chemical compounds, toxins, who knows? That's the subject for speculation at the moment. But what does that mean for the common ancestor of um, living amphibians and amniotes? It could mean that there was a glandular skin before there were, you know, before there were amniotes. We just don't know. So let, now let's think of amniotes. Well, um, basically amniotes, I'm sure everyone listening to this already knows, amniotes, the uh, tetrapods that produce amniotic membranes around their babies, the clade that includes reptiles, which includes birds, and the mammal line, which obviously includes stem mammals, non-mammalian synapsids, and mammals proper. And in reptiles, we tend to think of reptiles as animals with a non-glandular skin. Um, and as a generalization, maybe that's true. But as soon as you start looking at any of the groups in detail, that's totally not true. <laughs> so uh, lizards have got... Um, paraclocal glands loads of like little glands secreting compounds of some sort around the cloaca and they've also got femoral glands so along the posterior margin the femur uh, so the thigh um uh, loads of kinds of lizards have got femoral femoral pores femoral glands and so, so nobody knows what that's for they reckon people have known about this forever but nobody actually knows why they've got these glands it's thought to be some kind of sexual role turtles did you know that turtles have got musk glands all over the shell they've got these like pores with these ducts and they can produce it's why some turtles are called like stink pots or musk turtles uh, that the the shell obviously is a modified part of the skeleton it's the rib cage but it's got epidermal stuff on top of it as well so that's kind of like you know integumentary crocodilians have got paraclocal glands as well they've got these like these rows of like little um pores that secrete a uh, viscous fatty fluid of some kind that's presumed to have some kind of sexual role but no one knows what it is they've also got as sam mentions gular or mandibular glands these like brush-shaped dark brown paired glands on the lower jaw which uh, exude a kind of like musky stuff that again is supposed to be sexual in role have some sort of like function in um, courtship when they sort of scent mark each other and rub their heads on each other and stuff crocodilians also have uh, dorsal integumentary glands so they've got rows of skin glands distributed across the back there ends our knowledge. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they've got these glands. What are they for? What What are they producing? Um, they pro it's some sort of like oily stuff, and it's been suggested that it may have a role in um, self cleaning. That it may actually, you know, crocodiles are like slipping around in mud and stuff all the time. Why aren't they like caked in mud? They may actually produce fluids from dorsal integumentary glands that help slick off the crap from their back yep. right um birds are reptiles and close relatives of crocodilians and birds have the uropygeal gland which sam mentions also called the preen gland or the oil gland and it's this large kind of like heart-shaped bulb thing on the top of the tail not on the 
bottom surface of the tail, as stated by idiots in a recently published book, <laughs> but not in the second edition. And um, it's weird. It's got like a series of like ducts, and it produces uh, yeah a, a semi-viscous oily material that the birds collect on their face, on their bill, and they then obviously rub into the plumage elsewhere. Uh, the uh, uropygeal gland in some birds um, actually has symbiotic bacteria living inside it. It uh, famously does in hoopoos, which is thought to have some sort of role in inoculation. So maybe some like antibacterial properties thanks to other you know friendly bacteria uh it's also uh viscous and foul smelling in some birds and may actually have an anti-predator role and in some birds the uh fluid in the uropygeal gland has got pigment granules in in it so that the exudate from the gland has an orange orangish or reddish tint and is then used by a as a paint by the birds so this is most famous in hornbills where the hornbill bill of like for example think of the great indian hornbill the really big one with the giant rectangular flat-topped cask um their beak tissue is white but through the constant collecting of this prenoil from the gland they turn orange and so then putting it into their feathers they are changing the color of their feathers due to pigment granules secreted within i think that's right it's actually pigment granules that are, that are manufactured in the gla- in the gland so um seems like a complicated way of doing going about it doesn't it, it? does i well it's most likely that it's one of those weird knock-on things that it's like not that that was a specialization but it's just that's a quirk and then it worked so it's no reason to get rid of it yeah. i guess mammals finally mammals the other branch of amniotes basically three types of glands sebaceous glands which are associated with hairs producing sebum that keeps hair flexible and waterproofed sweat glands and mammary glands and mammary glands as pleasant a thought as this is are basically giant sweat glands <laughs> um and sweat glands probably are derived from sebaceous glands and um there have been suggestions i'm sort of i feel like i'm moving us away from sam's initial question is sebaceous gland a homologous term um because all these glands I've just mentioned, they, they all seem to have originated independently. Basically, they don't all seem to have descended one from the other. Okay, apart from in mammals, I think you could, a pretty strong argument can be made that sweat glands and memory, gland, <laughs> memory glands... Memory <laughs> um, I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere. Sweat glands and mammary glands probably have evolved from sebaceous glands. And there is an argument... Uh, it's going back a couple of years now. I forgot where I first read it. But there's an argument that sebaceous glands um, are tightly linked to the evolution of hair and that hairs may originally have evolved on the mammal lineage. Um, uh, hairs may have evolved, have may have co-evolved with the sebaceous gland because they evolved the gland first to keep the skin supple and then a hair follicle, a hair actually growing in the gland, was the uh, proved advantageous as goes getting the exudate, actually getting the material out of the gland. 
mm-hmm. obviously hairs are always associated with sebaceous glands. You've got, you know, the hair and then the sebaceous gland just underneath the epidermis, within the epidermis, uh, the base of the hair. Because there is actually a lot of literature, some of which I've read, that links the evolution of hairs and feathers and things to gland evolution. So um, is there, if sebaceous glands originally evolved to keep the skin supple, could they have descended from, if you think of what I said at the start, I said that uh, the ancestors of amniotes may have had a glandular skin. Could it be that the ancestors of sebaceous glands were present in the ancestral amniote? And if that's true, then there is, in a sense, a deep homology between all these glands, that they all start out in stem tetrapods, animals that are ancestral to both living amphibians and living amniotes. They start out as skin glands just to do with keeping the skin supple. And then you have amphibians do their own crazy thing with all kinds of skin glands. Mammals um, evolve what becomes sebaceous glands and ultimately they evolve hairs and sweat glands and mammary glands evolve from the sebaceous glands. And then in reptiles, is it that they keep this kind of proto-sebaceous gland? Is it that they lose it? The, 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 common, the commonest argument is they lose it and they have a completely aglandular skin, but then on independent occasions, they re-evolve the femoral, paracloacal, uh, dorsal and tegumentary uh, gula glands in different lineages and then birds ultimately evolve in uropygeal glands are those all independent things or do they have a deep homology with the ancestral amniote and even ancestral tetrapod condition and the answer on that is <laughs> waving my arms around there do you see that because yeah. Yeah, nobody that. knows yeah. that's the bit nobody knows, nobody knows. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not aware I'm not about to wade through the developmental evo devo literature actually it wouldn't be evo devo it'd just be tedious genetic homology stuff um, i don't know if that work's been done i haven't seen anything that indicates it has right so there's your answer sam we don't know <laughs> yeah well the, no, no, right. the answer the answer is it seems no that they are it seems not no. homologous although maybe they are but, but maybe they are in a yeah, I think it's a little bit like the feathers stuff. Right? Yeah, maybe, maybe depends what you mean by homologous because it's not actually just a, like a yes or no question. A lot of this time, we get these questions a lot, don't we, about homology? Mm. And I actually think what we're the reason it's difficult to answer a lot of the time is not only because we don't have the evidence. Is in this case we're probably missing lots of evidence because it's soft tissue and it's very difficult to um, reconstruct in the fossil record. But we've also got a bit of a problem of we don't really know what we mean a lot of the time by the trait because lots lots of traits are complicated, right? Mm. They're actually made up of a series of other traits. And when do you stop calling it that thing? Mm. And so therefore, a homology is how well, how flexible are you about what you mean by that thing? How, what, what sort of tiny sort of proto thing would be acceptable to say it's homologous, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know enough about glands to talk about it intelligently, but I think there's glands are clearly, in many ways, complicated things. They're composed of several smaller traits, and maybe some of those smaller traits are present in all these things, but other bits mm-hmm. 
Um, so, mm. Well, I don't know. I think yeah, the 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 fudge for this is what I what I did in that discussion then and I've done before, which is to refer to deep homology. So the kind of this sort of vague concept that there may be genetic coding that is expressed as you know, there's genes related to you having an opening on your skin and some oily stuff coming out, or yeah. genes related to you know fibres of some kind growing out of your skin. I think that's, and it, it's becoming pretty common that well, common that's the wrong word. It's becoming um, increasingly recognised that there is vague arm wavy deep homology for basically everything <laughs> within yeah. certainly within tetrapods. It's the 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 architecture, the genetic, you know. The ability to express things is there for everything. Yep. It's the but the specific structures, specific the specific structure of modern feathers, the specific structure of like a sebaceous gland, a uropygeal gland, only seems to have evolved within the lineage we associate it with, right? So, so there's there's like a local homology that we associate with a specific morphology or behaviour or whatever, and then there's like a an arm wavy Vega. Yeah, more 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 concept yeah. style version of the trait. Okay, so tidily answered. Let's do <laughs> tidily answered. <laughs> Very tidy. Okay, um, right. So this is in theory the final castle question, although what? probably oh. not. Probably not. So, but okay, this is from John Bonin. 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 Okay, well, there we go. In great cash request in style, we mm. don't know how to pronounce your name, even though it seems fairly straightforward. All right. So, how does one find information on fossil animals which lived at a certain time and place? It's easy to Google the name of species by name and thus learn its approximate age and environment, but impossible without some form of database to go the other way. Such a tool would be a boon to those seeking to trace evolutionary trends. Now, I can answer this question, Darren. Go on then. I look or forward do you to want your to answer. Go first. Well, no, why not? You. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. So, you can do it by time. So, people underestimate how good Wikipedia is for this stuff. But if you just go and click on Triassic, tri- clear. Oh, actually, I won't choose Triassic since I'm vague on the stages. So yeah, you click on Cretaceous. You click on Late Cretaceous. You click on Maastrichtian. You will get a list of things that were around at that time. Now, the list isn't exhaustive, but often it's pretty good. So I think you can find, and this is automatically linked through Wikipedia, so if you've got, you know, I don't know whether it's automatic, but people will find the animals that have Cretaceous, late Cretaceous, Maastrichtian listed as their Mm. horizon, Mm. and they will, I just used horizon wrong, didn't I? I think we know what you meant. Uh, yeah. yeah, we know what I meant. And therefore, they will be listed in this this thing. So you can do it. But if you want to cross-reference that to location, now you're going to have a bit more of a pro- problem. It's not... Wikipedia is difficult for formal relational systems. Like just all... What you need, yeah, is a relational database to do that. Run a database query. And... I don't know whether that exists. But you can do it by time, at least. And you can do it by location. I don't, uh, joining those two up are more, more difficult. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, a caveat I would just add to 
your uh, comment there is that uh, so even a time bin like the Maastrichtian uh, there's you know not all animals were alive for the whole of a certain geological you know span yeah. of time so so like when you really want to know who's contemporaneous in a fauna then uh, uh, something like Maastrichtian is often that's because there's a couple of million years you know you might need more specific uh, stuff which is still harder to get so so on the as it an initial quarrying and initial mining of information yeah yeah you, you find out yeah these set of animals are alive in the Maastrichtian and then if you want to know is it okay to show I don't know tax on x and tax on y is it literally okay to show them together well you know they live in the same place but then you just have read read up on them and find out yeah this one is a late Maastrichtian animal this one is an early Maastrichtian animal that kind of thing which is which is findable um so yeah increasingly this stuff is out there uh, I, I would agree with all that um but there are still huge areas where, you know, as soon as you move away from familiar animals and uh, periods of time that people are interested in, it becomes harder and harder. I, I don't have a, I, I really don't have a good answer on this, unfortunately, because my first answer, my first thought to John's question, how does one find information for fossil animals for a certain time and place? It's a very cynical I don't mean it to be cynical, but it is. Like, you have to go and collect all the primary literature <laughs> because to to check this stuff, we often do have to, you know, literally go and consult the technical papers that describe the specimens, that 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 are review papers that talk about, you know, the lizard assemblage of the Kaparowitz formation or whatever. Uh, obviously, there are uh, works on you know you name it on everything there's again again more there's a great number of them for familiar animal groups popular animal groups like dinosaurs and mammals but you do have these review volumes that talk about you know for, for dinosaurs the best example of this you've got these textbooks like by Shample Dodgson Osmolskas the Dinosauria where they have like literally a location by location um, you know lists of taxa known from specific sections of geological time and from specific locations that's exactly what you want but when you want to talk about other animal groups uh, it 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 is it is tricky there is a uh, a very important and much used internet database the pbdb the paleobiology database which um uh does uh provide all the information you'd want on on everything but um, you have to kind of know exactly what you're looking for. You couldn't just say, you can't just go to it and say, I want to look at all late Maastrichtian animals from Western North America. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Cause to be honest, I don't use it that much, uh, for several reasons. Um, it does have problems with it. There are, there are large areas where the taxonomy is just not accurate and where records are unquestioned or haven't been updated. Or, yeah. or where they've used, or where someone, whoever's put the input, the data, has put it in from. Uh, sadly, I've I've learned this um, due to my substantial research on fish. Um, like, I don't want to diss the PBDB, but there's a case where someone like added loads and loads of records, and they did it from a book published in like 1987, and it's like the the identifications in that book were lots sort of traditional classifications. They weren't done in keeping with like the mo any modern work that had been done on the specific group of animals. So there are a few cases like that that you would be aware of if you had specialist knowledge. But um, this has always been a problem. This has, it has always been really hard to get this to get this information. Um, so what John 
Bonin says in his question there, is it eagle? <laughs> is it easy to Google a species by name and thus learn its approximate age environment? Well, combine that with what the other John, what you said um, about you know Wikipedia being quite strong on this now is that's in this modern age that's probably still the easiest and most reliable way. But but I just there is there's no simple answer. Here. There isn't like yeah oh yeah you go to the big book of fossil animal faunas because there ain't no such thing. Yeah, I looked at I haven't looked at the PBBB <laughs> for years. Obviously, I mean I must have looked at it a while ago and decided it wasn't very useful to me as it was. I don't know. This is often the case. People announce a project and you look at it and you think, well, there's nothing here. Mm. And then years later you come back and you realize, oh, my God, there's heaps of stuff here now. Yeah. Um, so that's not a bad answer. Yeah, okay. So it's got some out-of-date information, or even a lot of out-of-date information. That's probably better than nothing at all, which is currently what lots of people are dealing with. So I think that's a good yeah. answer. It's used quite heavily. It does let you filter by these things. Yeah, it's, so. it's used by people who want to basically data mine large quantities of data for, you know, big faunal analyses, like, you know, yeah. how to, what is, what's, how does reptile distribution correlate to sea level? You know, you, this, it's a good resource for that kind of data, but for the specifics of some groups, um, it might not give yeah. you as much detail as you might like. Yeah. It does seem to just go to groups rather than listing every taxa named there or something. I don't know. I can't find how to do that immediately, but so, yeah. Okay. So there are such efforts underway, obviously. Um, but it's, I mean, I find this incredibly frustrating. When, as soon as you step out of something you know about, I mean, if I know about dinosaurs, I find it quite easy. Mm. And Wikipedia is actually good for dinosaurs. But if I'm looking up something I don't know about, it's really spotty. Yeah. Um, there's also and difficult plants are obviously virtually impossible in this respect there, there are an, annoyingly there are different traditions associated with different animal gr or groups of organisms so um as we've already established and as is probably known to many listeners um geological time the the sections of geolog geological time the so-called periods are split up into stages tetrapods normally hang around for like you know, one maybe two stages so we, we normally talk in terms of stages even then an organism may only be present for part of a stage the stages of these units like in the cretaceous it's aptine albion cenomanian Turonian, coniacean santonian campanian Maastrichtian, those those kinds of units but for other groups of organisms people don't use stage names they don't they for um there's a for, for mammals, mammal workers tend to use the North, Amer North American land mammal ages, which are these sort of like vague chunks of time that correspond to certain sort of faunal assemblages. It's a, it's a, 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 a totally different but overlapping system that you have to learn. But like, say, the Rancho Brean age, uh, I actually don't know the North American land mammal ages as, as well as I do the standard stage names. Um, so I'll, I'll probably get them wrong, but um, like let's say, for example, the Rancho Lebrayan is not just part of the Pleistocene because obviously named after Rancho Lebrayan in California, but it also like includes part of the Pliocene, the late Pliocene. So it doesn't correspond to stages, and you have to sort of learn it separately. And then you've got other groups of organisms where people just don't even they haven't yet they haven't got the fossils from places where. 
the ages are pinned down. So they know it's like late Miocene. So they just say late Miocene, which gives you a span of, you know, several million years, not as precise as a stage. In my textbook, I've got this is a big problem. It's the it's not standardized. And I can't I literally can't standardize it. I'm not going to impose a full standardization on it because at some some place I've got to say this is from the Miocene. They haven't, they, no one's worked out. Those strata haven't been dated precisely, whereas other cases it has been dated. You could say it's from the lower Zanclean or whatever, part of the Pliocene. Um, in other stages, in other places, you've got people talking about these different different um, nomenclatural systems for the relevant geological ages. So, so that is an added complication on this you can't you can't always if you want to know so like you know when people think of i want a list of late maastrichtian western north american dinosaurs you have got a specific list and it's been very well curated to use the wrong term and you know we're totally on top of the ages of the strata and so and so but if you want to know about like the middle oligocene um you know mammals of central asia it's like then there's We've got a vague idea of a group of animals that are from approximately that time and place, but there's a range of slop. And there's even cases where people, we think these might be contemporaneous, but we haven't quite ironed it out. And so there's some things that are going to be wrong. There's even things that are repeated all the time in the technical and popular literature and have made it into TV shows and stuff. That it's like, you know, well, people think these are contemporaneous. Other people say they're absolutely not. I'm thinking of lower oligocene brontotheres Chadro, the chadronian brontotheres like are they are, you know are they have they were they done by the end of the eocene or are they still hanging around in the early oligocene incidentally when i switch between early and late versus lower and upper that's deliberate when you're talking about live animals so brontosaurus was alive in the late jurassic brontosaurus was a late jurassic animal but this specimen I don't know, AMH 5067 or whatever, comes from the upper Jurassic because the rocks are lower, middle and upper. The, the actual times are early, middle and late. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No end of That's kind of a distinction without a difference now. Um, it was relevant when the sciences were getting up and started, but now we pretty much agree that, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no, it's technically wrong. I, I want to say that the paleobiodb.org PBDB. is kind of what you're looking for, PBDB, mm. but it's super detailed. So I'm just trying to find, like, you can't just get a list of everything in the Maastrichtian um, Western North America, for example. You sort of can, but you have to click through a lot of stuff to see the actual taxa list. That's probably because there's so many thousands of things. They don't want to just give you a page with 10,000 named taxa, right? So they've, you've really got to drill down into site-specific stuff. So it's quite impressive in many ways. It's very detailed, but yeah, mm. I I would struggle to use it um, for what I want, which is, you know, just give me the sorts of plants and animals that are around in this sort of time. I'm I'm willing to live with, you know, slop of a few a couple of million years maybe and um I don't need super precise taxa with a lot of stuff like plants. So I don't I don't know how to re reconstruct super specific things anyway. No one does. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's not mm. true. Yeah. Um, what's the URL? Uh, paleobiodb.org. So there you go, John. John Bonin. Um, mm. Yeah, hope that's... Uh, I think as far as we can go on that, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's wrap this up. I've got to eat lunch. You've got to eat lunch. You and your priorities. Always with the food. Every day. <laughs> every day. <laughs> like an idiot. Um, um, let me just check if there's... Oh, yeah, so we're not doing popular tat this time. Maybe next time. No. Yeah. Um, Cloverfield Paradox. Uh, should find something else to talk about because it'd just be bad. Um... All right, go on, you go first. Right. Uh, the podcast has a Patreon, which you should, uh, you should, uh, what's the word, sign up to. You know, we, we're pretty close now to the farty noises. No, so that's farty what everyone noises. Wants. It's not farty noises. <laughs> All the jingles are going to be farty noises. It's what the people want. <laughs> uh, so we're really close to that. Uh, so, yep, support us on Patreon. That's... Um, Patreon.com forward slash tetrapodcats. Um, the website is tetzoo.com. Uh, I'm John Conway uh, on Patreon and the John Conway on Twitter. Okay. Right. Now. <laughs> uh, so thank you to our listeners for taking us over the most recent uh, number of listeners. Doing well on that. And <laughs> six quazillion trillion hundred. Um, I uh, blog at Tetrapodology, currently hosted at Scientific American, and uh, I do appreciate support. And frankly, flipping need it. Jesus Christ, I haven't paid my tax bill this year. Um, what was I saying? Got distracted. Patreon. <laughs> I'm at patreon.com forward slash tetzoo for just a dollar a month. You can see millions and millions of pictures that I've done. I tweet at. I'm going to read the stage instructions this time. Let go, please. Leia flushes, <laughs> averting her eyes. She's not exactly fighting to get free, but of course, Han blows it. Don't get excited. <laughs> the anger rises in Leia. Captain, being held by you isn't quite enough to get me excited. Sorry, sweetheart. <laughs> we haven't got time for anything else. Han grins wickedly at Leia as he turns and exits through the door. Leia's confused emotions show clearly on her lovely face. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the act- that's the actual words. Oh, Do you know it has dialogue for Chewbacca in there? Dialogue for Chewbacca. I, sh- I kid you not. Actual. Oh, God, that's the third time you said <laughs> well, it. <laughs> I think most of our listeners are adult. Um, that was your rule. I never wanted. Well, that rule. maybe we should change the rules then. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll um, talk to you again next time. And uh, thanks for listening. Uncle Darren's anecdotes.
In an effort to improve the speed and efficiency with which I was able to skeletonize the corpses of birds and other animals during my time in the august facilities at the University of Portsmouth, and following the sorry failure of my corpse pit experiment, I endeavored to initiate my own body farm in the confines of the university grounds. In an earlier experiment, a starling corpse placed adjacent to a large woodlouse colony was fully skeletonized in a matter of days. Inspired and excited by the prospect of cheap woodlouse labor, I set about the construction of a new corpse cleaning facility. I acquired a giant plastic box, filled it with substrate, obtained plastic sheeting that would form a lid, and collected a substantial number of wood lice from the field. They would be my corpse eaters. In a bold and perhaps poorly considered move, I elected to place the corpse box in my office bookcase. The corpse in question was that of a sparrowhawk, a gift from paleontologist Paul Davis, who in turn had obtained the hawk as a gift from his cat. In an effort to remove as much soft tissue as possible, I dissected the hawk, removed its organs. Incidentally, and in an entirely separate incident, the scalpel used to dissect the hawk stabbed my office mate Lorna Steele in the leg, meaning that she had to endure tetanus injections and a trip to the hospital. And so the woodlouse colony was put to work. I look forward to the production of a gleaming white skeleton, fully defleshed by my handy little woodlice soldiers. But no, they all died. <laughs>